Welcome back, everybody. I am Cass Pianci, and as usual, I am joined by my partner in crime, Bennett Tomlin. How are you? Oh, I'm doing well, Cass. How are you? I'm doing good. Uh, we have our first repeat guest today, which is David Z. Morris from Coindesk. How are you, sir? Uh, I'm, I'm great. I had no idea I was the first two-timer. Congratulations, I, I guess. No, absolutely. Glad to be here. Today, we're discussing Evergrande, which is a topic that is on everyone's lips. In case you're unfamiliar, just on a basic level here, Evergrande is one of the top real estate companies in the world. It's not just China. It Because it is China, it is one of the top real estate companies in the world. And they are having some serious debt issues um, right now. And kind of the, the whole world is watching to see how China responds to this. That That's about as much as I know. And I think we, we want to talk to David to see how he can explain this m- more thoroughly. <laughs> I don't know about that. I mean, I, I have to say I'm coming into this not by any means as an expert on Evergrande, although I've been doing my best to catch up. Why this is of interest to the three of us as a group in particular, which is that um, Evergrande is not just a big real estate company that's in debt. It's a big real estate company that's in debt. Uh, and also has some very complicated internal and external financial relationships, including the, the, the total debt is like $300 billion apparently. Um, and that includes basically it's everywhere. Um, it, the scale, it remains to be seen how bad the infection is, so to speak, um, because it is about almost half the size of Lehman was when it collapsed. But those uh, those connections go far and wide. So there's a lot of foreign stockholders that hold uh, Evergrande in, in some form or another. Um, it's in a lot of hedge funds. And of course, it's, it's all over China. So a lot of other Chinese uh, banks and financial institutions hold it. Um, and, and then uh, I think we'll get into this, but there are also uh, some familiar overtones of the topic of my previous appearance, Enron. Uh, some some little notes where you can dig into Evergrande and it starts looking funky in a particular way that we love to see. I think that the other big part, which Cass, I think maybe we can uh, transition there or maybe there's maybe Ben wants to chime in of his view, but um, the other big part is that this is a, as much as there are some similarities, um, this is going to be a big case study in uh, a sudden wake-up call, I guess, about the difference between the U.S. equity market and regulatory regimes and the way things work on the ground in China. Um, I've been writing about this, and one of the things that I think is very true is that people look at Chinese stocks, and they think they're the same thing, and they're not, to put it really bluntly, um, in, in ways that I think that we can get into. That just reminded me that just a couple days ago, on the 20th, the SEC actually issued a specific warning to investors to make them aware of the risks of putting their money into U.S.-listed international corporations. And they specifically call out the Chinese variable interest entities that are often what you're actually trading in when you're dealing with these uh, U.S.-listed Chinese domiciled companies. And like one of the things they talk about is how Gensler actually specifically threatened to start kicking some of these companies off of the stock exchanges if they don't start meeting the U.S.-based reporting requirements for these corporations. And so there's already been existing for a long time such a huge difference between like the reporting requirements for Google versus Alibaba. And, and this delves into something which I think all of us have had the opportunity to watch, which is 
China Hustle. I urge anyone listening right now to go ahead and give give that a viewing. Um, and the idea with China Hustle was that these investors who had been very bullish on Chinese companies started to do some research into what was actually going on on the ground in China. So they would do pretty simple things like plant a camera outside the company for two years and record every single day and would just know based on those recordings that the claims they were making on how much money they were moving, product they were moving, were totally false. Yeah, business intelligence stuff that's pretty standard in the U.S. actually, for the most part. Right. The The idea being that these companies were able to bypass proper protocols, report whatever numbers they wanted to the SEC or to whatever regulator. And in the meantime, they would report real numbers to the Chinese regulators who had no directive, no legal reason to give these numbers to the SEC or any other entity in America. My reading of that part of the documentary was actually even stronger than that, which was that the Chinese regulatory bodies had no power to punish these companies for reporting different numbers abroad than they were at home. Um, and, and I mean, what that means could be, you know, anything from some law that's actually written down somewhere to just an unspoken CCP directive, which is another topic that we can get into. But but yeah, the, the, this idea that, um, well, first of all, because everything is connected, I don't I'm not familiar with uh, um, these variable interest entities that you're referring to, Bennett, but at least back in, in this period, which was about from, you know, 2010 to 2016 or so, uh, these stocks became listed thanks to, what are they called? Reverse mergers, which are also the way that SPACs were structured when those became a big thing in 2019. So you would have a, uh, a like a mining company, a broke, a broke mining company in Montana would be able to uh, sell itself essentially to a Chinese company who could then use its registration to become a listed New York Stock Exchange company. Um, and, uh, and and that was the, that was the needle they were threading. Um, so I think that that story is a nice microcosm of what's also going on in some different ways domestically in China. Before we delve into the intricacies of the Chinese property market or how these <laughs> corporate bonds are structured or whatever um, when it comes to Evergrande here, I think it's also important to note that all of us are interested in Evergrande probably most likely because of Tether and because there was a rumor involved. God, I nearly forgot. <laughs> with Tether that they owned Evergrande commercial paper. Now, they've denied that. Uh, Paulo Arduino, the CTO of Tether, has denied that publicly, um, which will take them at their word on that, I suppose. But otherwise, they do supposedly and probably own Chinese commercial paper. And what's happening at Evergrande seems to be a broader issue. Is that right, David? Well, so this is such an interesting case in a sort of um, ontological sense, how we know what we know. Uh, I think this is a case where it's safe to trust Tether because it doesn't f-ing matter if they're lying. That commercial paper, whether it's Evergrande or just the next door neighbor to Evergrande, it's basically functionally the same stuff. It's all interconnected. And, um, you know, we talked before we taped what's the most recent stuff that's happening. And we're starting to get really strong signals that the Chinese government is not going to bail this company out. 
and I think we should talk about why that was, um, I think, Cass, you probably were ahead of the curve of, of me on this one, but it seems like that was never a really likely outcome because of, again, the way that the Chinese market works, particularly the fact that Evergrande was always competing with state-owned enterprises. Um, so uh, that's, uh, that's all of these are structural and, and just, it's so weird. But yeah, Tether, so they have you know, not denied that they have Chinese commercial paper. Um, and that's, you know, short term debt, which is really important to remember because um, it's supposedly safe because it's short term, but it also means things can go bad really fast. And so, uh, yeah, for the crypto people out there, uh, I'm sorry, but it's it's a real issue. <laughs> and it's not resolved just because they said they didn't own Evergrande. That is kind of meaningless. I don't know exactly this is a transition, but it's it's at the top of my list of shocking things. Um, and uh, I should give a shout out first because I uh, just spent a little while listening to a guy named Trans Lundy, um, who is a uh, an analyst in Hong Kong talking about these issues. And he brought up this uh, amazing fact. So... Uh, real estate as a share of the Chinese economy was, I think this was recently, maybe it's gone down slightly, but it rose to a point that it was uh, nearly twice the level that real estate was as a share of the economy in Japan in 1989. Um, so that, I think, is another really key piece of context before we get in here, both because, of course, Japan uh, kind of ate it pretty quickly after that for structural reasons having to do with real estate. Um, and uh, just to say that this is a frenzy that has been going on in China for a long time. And this, there's kind of a track record of how we got here at a, at a macro structural level. I'd like to start from what I know personally. And just what I know personally is anecdotal and from being on the ground in China years ago. I remember seeing, I, I was in a pretty rural part of China. And I remember asking questions about, first of all, I, I realized at some point that they're a, even if it isn't how it actually is, they're supposed to be socialist or communist in the way that they operate. So private entities and private ownership aren't really considered often. And so when I asked about property ownership, which became like a really important question I had after spending my entire life in America where property ownership is literally why people will choose to live in a state. They'll ask what the property taxes are and they'll buy land there because of it. In China, most of the people I spoke to had 60-year leases or 99-year leases with the state. There, there was no ownership with a lot of these people. And I think that's something that is so drastically different than what we have here in America and needs to be addressed on, on some level. So, Cass, like, if I get a 99-year lease on a house and I live there for 60 years and then die, and there's 39 years left on the lease, does that, like, go to my heirs? Does the state reclaim the remainder of the release? No, as far as I know, that goes to your heirs. When you reflect on how old the state is the Chinese Communist Party is, it isn't that old. So like dealing with 60 year leases and 99 year leases, like they haven't had to deal with it that much. And during this time, they've been expanding. And th if anything, they're just buying people out right after they've had these leases before they'll buy them out and then resell that or release it to some developer and they will subsidize them or whatever to build on that property. And a lot of the time, 
in the past few years that ends up being what has been witnessed, ghost cities and what we experienced in 08, which was empty homes, empty vacation homes, empty homes that just weren't being bought. They were being flipped over and over again. I was seeing that when I was there. I was witnessing it myself. Yeah, and that's very interesting. I mean, it's a topic that I actually, the the ghost cities in particular, it's not something that I know a lot about, but it's sort of uh, maybe a kind of trope of the way that we in the West have been trained to think about like socialist economics is like this unproductive overproduction. Um, So it's sort of interesting from that perspective, but I don't think that's necessarily the real story because, you know, you think about China and it's certainly not a communist nation anymore. Um, I mean, it probably has some, some characteristics of socialism, um, but also in some ways it has both the uh, the worst characteristics of both communism from the authoritarian perspective and uh, and capitalism from just the rapaciousness and oligarchical perspective. But but the, but the fundamental reality of those leases that's interesting and important is that yeah the state owned all of the land um, until 1998, which was when um, a new law, which the again I'm cribbing from Lundy here, but I forget the name of the law, but in 1988 municipalities began to be able to sell uh, land to private owners in the proper sense that we understand it as private property. Um, and, and it's interesting, Cass, that you were in these sort of second tier or third tier cities or even beyond that, because um, that, that is primarily where Evergrande operated, because these municipalities actually, to a significant degree, depend it, right now on the revenue from land sales to fund their own operations. So uh, so that's actually a, a major part of the story here is that uh, there's maybe uh, more incentive to sell the land than there is actual need for the developments that are going to be up on it because the, the revenue comes from the land sales to these these uh, local governments. And, and more to the point, the, uh, the sort of novelty of this is so important. 20 years, it's not that long for people to understand the concept of private property and the immense complexities that we're now seeing of the markets that grow up around it. Well, and this is somewhat unrelated, but it's also fascinating to me how many other businesses Evergrande ended up involved in. Like they had an electric vehicles division and they were doing all of this other research and development and production work totally unrelated to land development. And one of the reasons I heard for that is because by investing in those areas, they were often able to convince more municipalities to sell the land and then so they could do more development and continue the expansive growth. Okay, so so while we've talked around Evergrande, can we actually address, like, what is breaking Evergrande right now? What is happening? Um, so it's actually more specific than I think probably most people realize. Chinese property market has been heavily leveraged for a long time in the sense that these developers, the private developers, I know, I, I don't really know the status of the, the state-owned enterprises, but it's been a situation for a long time. Um, and, you know, it's somewhat in parallel, and I think this is very interesting, but somewhat in parallel with the crackdowns that we're seeing on technology right now in terms of data handling and really huge impacts on companies like, uh, Ant Financial, whose IPO was canceled uh, because of the intervention of the state. Uh, a year ago, a new rule came down called the Three Red Lines Policy from the uh, Central Planning Committee of the ruling Communist Party. Um, and basically, it was, a, it was a mandate for these companies to deleverage and to reduce the amount of debt on their balance sheets. Um, and I, I'm, you know, this is where the limits of my knowledge are. I have no idea what the mechanisms would have been for 
for enforcing that within China, either you know financially or politically. Uh, but basically, um, the the one that was really obvious is that banks stopped lending to these entities about a year ago. And so what we're seeing now is effectively just the unwind when a, a deeply leveraged company can no longer open new lines of credit or has no new capital. Um, and, and, you know, one of the things that, again, fraud nerds, this is where the story gets fun. Um, this has been kind of a tightening news for a while. And so you saw things like Evergrande um, has already several times used um, discounted real estate or apartments to pay off cash debts. But the even crazier thing is at a certain point, and I think this is recently so, post the implementation of this new policy, they started pressuring their own employees and contractors who they did business with to invest in Evergrande-controlled um, investment products. Uh, and, and, and this is already insane because you're now, what is clear in retrospect, it's unclear how obvious this was at the time, but of course these investment funds were then being used as operating funds um, for Evergrande itself. The problem, you know, I mean, the really obvious problem is they were offering 11% returns on these accounts, um, which as anybody who pays attention to frauds knows, is a uh, is a fraud number. What are you, you going to call that? It's a fraud number. It's a number that you put on something that's a fraud, especially if it's also being advertised as being super safe and you're this big company that has this brand name, which is important to remember. Evergrande is a brand name in China. People who lived in the, their apartments were seeing advertising to invest in these funds. So essentially, uh, it, in the wake of having their credit cut off, Evergrande tried to eat its own tail, and that seems to have come to an end. And by the way, I just want to mention this really quickly. What we call Evergrande, I think they they call in China Hongda or, or something like that. Um, and uh, they don't know what Evergrande is, um, but they do know what that is, and they do know it's in trouble. But I, I think that they do not... They're not hearing that the rest of the world is watching this really, really closely and that the rest of the world is very worried about it. When I was there, I remember thinking, my God, let's say the city I was in, uh, we'll just term it KM. The, the city KM had just seen not only like some growth in residential, like a little bit. What it had seen was people buying up all the property surrounding KM, all of it. And what they were doing was then flipping it. They would develop some sort of like maybe architectural plan and then flip that, right? Like they would double the value just by designing a plan. And then they would sell that to someone who would build the plan out and then resell that plan or that build out to someone else, right? Like it felt very much like 0708 from someone who was just abstractly familiar with all of this, who was like, oh, wow, it seems like these prices are going up really fast and are simply dependent on speculation. I mean, I think that that's definitely part of it. I mean, it sounds like you're describing Florida for sure. Although I will say it, it's also important to keep in mind that the real estate market is really complicated and very weird compared to a lot of markets. And, and part of that is that it is kind of inherently pretty leveraged because, of course, you have to take out a really big ass loan to build a 50 story condo. And you're not going to be selling those until they're pretty close to being done. So that's that's a it's, it's capital intensive business. And another really important implication of that is that 
you know, policy has huge weight in real estate um, because the way that your taxes are structured has such huge implications for the way your business is doing, for example, or, you know, bank policy, as we've seen right now. It's sort of like this intersection of two things where there are probably a lot of government incentives that are driving liquidity for like, let's say 2008 to 2019 in China. Um, And then you can very quickly have those reversed in ways that kind of have these structural impacts. And it's interesting also, I'll be really curious if we get reporting about the Chinese populace's understanding of finance in more general in a more general sense because it's it's understandable enough that they maybe are not attuned to how important this is everywhere but it's i'm really curious if they understand that their economy could maybe be blown up in a much more dramatic way by the collapse of this company yeah and i think there's a a couple ways to think about that and one i one that i've been thinking about lately there's one, I think she is willing to let the billionaires fall on their swords um, because... Oh, let's talk about this. Yes. Because I think not only do people generally in China, not it's not like America where we worship billionaires and think about them as the all-encompassing heroes of capitalism. I have a friend in China and I remember Jack Ma was like Uncle Ma. And then within a month, it was like, Jack Ma is such a piece of It was really incredible to see that kind of transpire just because the state said so. And I I don't think people reflect on how much... Like, if she says these billionaires are to blame for the economic issues, they're probably going to believe him. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, And actually, there's something even more specific than that, which is that Xi has actually said he believes that housing is for living in and not speculating. That's a quote. And then, yeah, the the. This is a big, big lesson. The last year has just been one after another. Uh, China cracking down on uh, entire sectors that have maybe become really big in capital terms, but that basically Xi Jinping and a few other guys have decided are not socially productive. And uh, they can do it like that. And I think they gave us about 20 years in which we forgot that. And now it's coming back down. I, I was just thinking about all the places we've seen crackdowns, tech industry broadly, the crypto industry broadly, and then other things have been exposed as like outright frauds. I'm thinking of like Luckin Coffee, who just finally settled their lawsuit today, stating that they had uh, misstated their earnings. And so there's just been a whole spate of the miners got kicked out of China. And like we mentioned, Ant Financial and Alibaba both had issues. Zhao Dong is in a Chinese prison right now. So yeah. Yeah. And and it's interesting you mentioned Luckin because one of the um, things that I think still kind of remains to come out about Evergrande, because usually this is what happens after something collapses. Not a a lot of people have spoke, talked about the idea that Evergrande itself has fraudulent elements. Um, I mean, it it does seem like the vast majority of the issue is more structural, Um, but but there are some really interesting threads. So for example, 
uh, and you know, buzz in when you recognize this, but Evergrande do- did and does a huge amount of business through joint ventures. And those joint ventures sometimes carry their own debt. And that sounds an awful lot like Jedi and like Chuko, the joint ventures that Enron spun off specifically for the purpose of hiding debt. And so, you know, we have that 300 billion number from Evergrande, but we actually, I think, do not know that that is the actual number still. It's hard for me to quantify this is that on one hand, I look at Enron or WorldCom, I look at the 08 bust and how, I don't know, one person went to prison for that. Madoff, you think about the team behind Madoff and Madoff went to prison. It always feels very inconsequential here in the US. Like like these white collar criminals get off with everything. And then I reflect on the alternative when you look at China and you go, oh, at least they're prosecuting these people who have done wrong to the community at large. But also, in return, I just see that it's going to empower Xi. It's not, it's not happening for the greater good. It's, it's, it ends up being, oh, see, Xi knew that these billionaires were bad guys. Like, thank goodness for Xi. Yeah. You know, this just triggered a very interesting thought in me, because one of the one of the things I have to say to that is, you know, we're also seeing a lot more, at least compared to the immediate aftermath of the 2008 collapse. We're seeing a lot more people in the streets in China right now. They're they're calling for heads. They're demanding restitution. They're putting pressure by being actually out there and being visible. But I think one of the really interesting things about that is I think they might be mad and maybe I'm speculating a little bit here, but I think they might be mad because they don't take for granted all the negative things that we take for granted as inevitable and and impossible to fight against. So I think there was a, a, you know, when you talk about people getting away with stuff, I mean, there's a certain fatalism to that in the United States in terms of our individual processing of it. Like, that's just the way things work. And so, I mean, the fact that all of this is so novel in China, it's interesting because on some level, you almost want to look at it and see like a more natural response to uh, let's just use the C word capitalism and and the way it works and and people are in the streets because they see the way it works and they don't like it um, and, and so that's not to say uh, you know that doesn't necessarily connect back to anything but it it's a, it's a thought that just popped into my head while you were talking I mean we had Occupy Wall Street after 2008 well Occupy didn't start until a couple years after the actual crisis to be to be you know, that that's kind of what I was getting at there. But I mean, yeah, fair enough. Like, it, it, it's a change that has come in the other direction in the US uh, somewhat more gradually. But I do absolutely see uh, what you're talking about, David. And, and, and I think one of the really important moments that I remember talking to friends on the mainland was, I, I, I don't know if most people have followed Chinese politics. But at some point in the past few years, she became essentially dictator for life. Like he changed the constitution so that he can just be she for good. When I asked about that, it was this idea of, well, he's done really good for everybody so far. The middle class is growing and um, everybody is very happy with like, like things that we reflect on. I, everyone here goes, there's no privacy in China, but I've never felt safer also, which is like, not to suggest that's, you know, a good thing. It's a thing, right? They're sacrificing freedom to a certain extent for, like, I could walk around drunk on Baijo at three in the morning and know that I was not going to get mugged. And I think they trust the state 
a lot more than they trust billionaires. And we're almost the opposite here. Well, I, I, I do want to address that specific point, but another thought that just popped in my head that I'm going to say out loud, even though it's going to make people who listen to this probably very, very mad. The way you just described that, it absolutely sounds like the uh, the logical endpoint of citadels, which are, you know, if you're familiar with the crypto discourse, are these like privatized, capitalized uh, things that people will move to based on their performance. Like when you just have a dictator for life, it's like it's going to be high security uh, and, and uh I, so anyway, I have so many thoughts about this idea of trust in government in the U.S., but and, and I, I don't have any insight into it in in China. But I do think the the trust in billionaires has been eroding in the U.S. pretty quickly, um, and so I think there may be a lot more common ground there than there would have been, let's say, ten years ago. But in terms of that Chinese political deal that Xi has cut between him and the people, I think that's also important from again, kind of like a finance and fraud and monetary perspective, because Xi policy then becomes um, a little bit more, in some ways, almost like the uh, the way the U.S. stock market rewards quarter to quarter performance, right? If you're Xi, uh, it does make it more difficult to make these policy decisions where you're knocking down entire industries when you've made this bet with the middle class that you're going to make them rich. I mean, it's something that people actually kind of invoked maybe in around like 2005, 2006, when we first started having really serious conversations about uh, the impacts of China, China joining the World Trade Organization and other things that integrated it into the economy. One of the real tropes was, you know, A, somehow magically them being capitalists is also going to make them democratic. B, the other deal that emerged was you know, we're going to draw China further into the global system because their leaders have a have an incentive to help people get rich and to live comfortable lives. Um, and so that, again, I think you have this like 20 year period where that held true. And now all of a sudden we've got this cutoff. We've got this apparent reversal where maybe Xi thinks maybe people are rich enough. And and so that all kind of fits together in terms of where the incentives lie, at least at the high level. It certainly seems to me like he may be worried, and I'm very much speculating here, but it seems like he may be worried about the increasing like income and wealth inequality because of like the new class of billionaires and like capital owners, really. Right. Absolutely. And so it's a lot easier to promise people that they'll be rich if their conception of rich is not one of billionaires, right? If it's having a house to live or something like that, owning a house, things like that. So it might just be that he wants to reset the standard a little. I mean, that's an interesting observation, but I mean, I think obviously Americans are, you know, uniquely insane, um, but somehow they all do think they're going to be billionaires. So I, I, I don't know. Maybe, maybe Chinese people just don't have the same brainworms. I think there's a, a, in the 1950s, Americans were convinced like everything is peachy and we had externalized an enemy, which was <clears throat> at the time communism. I think I see China as being in that kind of like halo right now where for the most part, you have Han Chinese people on the mainland just united in trying to make sure that China isn't treated how it was for what's called the century of humiliation for them, which was like 1840 to 1940. Um, and they don't ever want to experience that again. And they're doing a mighty fine job of making sure that's the case. 
Yeah, and it's interesting you put that in terms of the the parallel to the U.S. I, I would add, you know, I think it's implicit in what you said, but I would add a nuance there, which is what was happening in the 1950s was not that everybody thought everything was peachy and keen. It was that there was a single all-encompassing narrative that was shared by everybody who had real power. And then, you know, when you turn it to the um, the situation in China, and you did specifically say Han Chinese, right? Like, that's the dominant ethnic group, and, and that is the people who, whether they're, like, happy or not, I think we get the, like, shiny, happy version of the 1950s more in retrospect than was the case at the time. But whether they're happy or not, they are united. And now we're looking, and, and G. Bennett, you, you said, like the income inequality is definitely a, a wedge that can be driven. I mean, we're, we're living through it in the United States, right? Like that is what is happening in the United States, um, whether people are willing to acknowledge it or not, is that this uh, income inequality situation um, is driving people to basically abandon society. Um, and we're, we're very far ahead of anywhere China could be anytime soon. But um, if this is really Xi's thinking, he's ahead of us, frankly, um, even if we don't like the way that he's dealing with it. Yeah. And I mean, really, it's all coming down to what you mentioned before with the uh, three red lines rule, right, where it was all about trying to delever the economy. And so towards the end of 2020, China started telling banks to be more cautious in which mortgages they came gave out because of that there was less money flowing directly to Evergrande. Evergrande had a bad return on assets, and so now they're like the fourth company in the last five years in China to default with more than $150 billion on their sheet when they did it. And I think with all the other ones, China also chose not to bail them out, basically forced them to go into a restructuring, and then punished the executives. And so I think the template that we're likely to see from China is... They will force Evergrande into restructuring, provide enough liquidity to the Chinese market as a whole to keep it afloat, punish the executives, and then continue on with probably marginally less growth going forward than they've had for the past two decades because they're delevering their system. Yeah, and, and marginally less growth is actually key here because one of the reasons that they're able to, to take this hard line um, and, and one of the reasons it's so much harder in the U.S. Um, is because of their ability to implement or the you know existence of uh, state-controlled ways of providing the same services that these private companies are doing. Um, so, so there's a different kind of backstop, right? Like in the U.S., we think of things as being too big to fail because they provide vital services or because they're financially, structurally too important and everything runs on those financial rails, right? Like there is a portion of the Chinese economy and just Chinese existence which still just doesn't run on the financial rails to a certain extent. Um, and, and, and that's an important point part of, again, when you look at a Chinese stock, it's part of how you have to remember that it is fundamentally different from a U.S. stock. Um, and there used to be this thing called the Greenspan put, right, which was this understanding that when Alan Greenspan was still chairman of the Fed, he would not allow the stock market to go down. I mean, this is just a thing that people openly talked about. Um, and, you know, you start thinking about pensions in the United States, pensions controlled by states that are so heavily invested in the stock market that if we had a 20% drop, everything would collapse. The U.S. just has this system 
where everything is dependent on the the markets and the equity markets in such way, such a way that um, the government does have to simply come and give private companies a bunch of money every once in a while because we don't have an alternative if they you know sell off all of their typewriters or whatever that's not the case in China. I mean, there's plenty of American companies that uh, operate almost exclusively on government subsidies. To be fair. Oh yeah, for sure. But they're but they're companies, and they're companies operating on subsidies. That's what I'm saying. There, there there's not a U.S. owned alternative to Lockheed Martin, for example. I guess my my argument, and I, I'm glad you mentioned Lockheed, is that Lockheed's entire business model depends on the Pentagon, and the idea that if the Pentagon lost, let's say, eighty percent of its funding tomorrow, Lockheed would go out of business. No, that's totally fair. Yeah. However, it wouldn't necessarily have to be the the Pentagon losing 80% of its funding. I mean, the Pentagon can redirect that funding to other firms. Um, So I guess we kind of, I don't know, maybe we're arriving at a similar point. But my my point was not so much that the state does or doesn't support companies. I mean, my point is that the state can't let those companies fail, right? So it's not that the Pentagon would be what's gone. If Lockheed is gone, then the Pentagon's in trouble, right? I think this is really key. I mean, it's like the old joke about uh, when you owe the bank a million dollars, you're in trouble. When you owe the bank three billion dollars, they're in trouble. Okay, let's let's, let's revise the joke, right? I don't know. I might have to work on this one, but it's something about companies in China versus companies in the U.S. And and for companies in the U.S., it's like if the companies go out of business, it's the government that's in trouble. and, and and that I think is uh, is the the key to understanding the the implicit backstop, and all of the obviously all of the problems that that come with that implicit backstop to things like banks and et cetera. You know, I mean, it, it, my view of China is getting better as we go through this conversation. You know, because I started off saying like, this is the worst parts of capitalism and communism, and I'm like. Well, maybe this is actually kind of one of the good parts of capitalism, which is, which is that you let things die. And it's easier to let things die when you have a, a system in place that can pick up some of the slack uh, left when they are no longer able to provide the services that they were providing. Well, and just building on that, it kind of makes sense why you wouldn't want to bail out a massive corporation that just failed, especially like in the case of Evergrande, most other property developers were averaging uh, just over 2% return on assets, but Evergrande was down at like 0.3%. So they were actually producing subpar returns compared to like the rest of these firms. And so you almost don't want to bail them out and keep them alive because then they do grow to a point where they are systemically important and where there is such a contagion risk that you can't control it just by injecting liquidity. And so by letting them die here and just trying to minimize the collateral damage, you prevent the situation where you need to backstop an entire industry to prevent the global economy from failing. Yeah, and it's really interesting from a leadership perspective because it is, um, you know, it's a timing thing, right? Like if you're China, you have to let the bubble expand to exactly the right spot before you pop it. Um, and, and the interesting thing about the um, three lines, uh, or sorry, three red lines policy is, of course, that it arrived right in the middle of COVID, right? Um, and uh, I think, you know, China had a much bigger recovery from that than much of the rest of the world, at least for a little while. I haven't kept totally up with that narrative. Um, but uh, it's, it is interesting that it came at that time. And I wonder if that had anything to do with it. I have no exposure to, you know, what COVID meant for the Chinese real estate market. But um, it does seem interesting uh, in terms of popping a bubble and when you want to do that.
Yeah, and I think um, while we're all witnessing this from the outside and wondering if and how it can affect the U.S. economy, cryptocurrencies, the European economy. Like, I think I think it's just a big question mark in regard to all of these places. I, I think the bigger question mark is really how it's going to affect China and what, what it will mean for China in the end. Yeah. And I think you, you said maybe right at the start or before we started recording that you recently saw there is now a mandate that Evergrande will be paying back all dollar-denominated debts. So... So this gets to probably the key question in terms of contagion and and um, whether within China or anywhere else, which is when an organization like this defaults, the real question is who gets paid first. That's you know going to be a very interesting political question in China that is going to be, I'm sure, resolved through some very intimate conversations. <laughs> you know, so you have these foreign creditors, and it's very interesting that we're now, if we're hearing this correctly, that they're being basically prioritized to be the first people paid it's, back. To be fair, it's a uh near-term dollar bonds. It's not long-term. Okay. Oh. So, so who knows Who knows what the future may bring, but for the, for the a, time being... That makes being, a huge difference, yeah. It's, it's buying time to restructure, probably. Yeah. But, that, okay, that's a, that's a bit of a middle ground, I guess. Um, but either way, the, the larger question is, how do you rank the various creditors in terms of them getting paid back? And, you know, given the way the Chinese system works, it's not like there's a algorithm per se. I mean, I'm sure there is in some sense, like a, a legal process to determine who has priority on those assets. Um, but, you know, those that that algorithm can always be superseded. And uh, so that means the political responsibility ultimately is going to sit with Xi. And if enough people don't like the way that he decides who gets repaid, um, I mean, he metaphorically, I'm not saying he's literally going to sit down and, and do this, but, um, you know, that's the political question here is you have to uh, make that priority list and, and the, the CCP ultimately is going to sit with the consequences of those decisions. Yeah. If either of you have anything to add before we sign off, feel free. Uh, just that uh, you can, as always, follow me on Twitter at, at David Z. Morris um, and check out my book, Bitcoin is Magic, uh, which is uh, hopefully fun. It's not a regular Bitcoin book. It's a little bit about Aleister Crowley and a little bit about uh, Transmagestus and cults and uh, Alan Moore and how to cast spells and what Bitcoin has to do with all of that. So hopefully that's intriguing. Fantastic. Uh, thanks for coming back, David Morris. And uh, yeah, we'll talk to everybody soon. <laughs>